Good morning. Good to see everyone. I want to encourage you to get out your sermon notes. Uh, I don't have any blanks today, and so all you can do is circle, underline, put arrows. So anyway, I wanted to make it easy. So today we're going to not only give an introduction to Revelation, we're actually going to try to do an overview of the entire book. So everybody kind of buckle your seatbelt. We're just going to kind of go through. I want to ask you a question to begin with. What does Jesus look like? What does Jesus look like? I like the story of the Sunday school class. A little boy was coloring. The teacher said, well, honey, what are you coloring? He said, I'm coloring a picture of God. The teacher said, well, honey, no one knows what God looks like. He said, they will in about five minutes. <laughs> That's optimism, amen? But anyway, when I grew up, I had a picture of something like this. I saw a lot of these pictures. Matter of fact, when I grew up, my dad had one of these pictures in our living room, all right? Now, if you know me, you know I'm not really a big person on pictures of Jesus, because I, I just think sometimes it's misleading. The Bible really doesn't say a whole lot about how he looked when he walked on this earth. It does say in Isaiah that he had no form or comeliness. There was really nothing about him that would attract us to him. So I think he was probably extremely average looking. I don't think there was anything about him that just wowed people, all right? But again, I think the reason is that the Bible told us he had green hair, I would go, I'd have green hair. If the Bible told us something, we would try to imitate that. But there really is no indication. But in the book of Revelation, we have probably the only physical type description of Jesus. Well, obviously, I don't, I don't think he looked like this probably, but again, it gives us an image in our mind. But if you remember Saul, when he was on the road to Damascus, he encountered Jesus. And his encounter of Jesus, as he was later talking to Agrippa, he said, it was at noonday, and when Jesus appeared to him, he said it was brighter than the noonday sun. So if you would ask me, what, what does God look like? I would say that right there. I think his glory is so spectacular that literally it's blinding, all right? And so in the book of Revelation, we're going to again go through that. So I want to start and just read the first eight verses. So I'm going to do an introduction to the book, and then I'm literally going to do an overview of the book, okay? So everybody's going to have to listen really close. And so I got this in white and blue but I think we're just going to all read it together, all right? It's very important that we all read because the Bible promises a blessing for those who hear and those who read and those who keep. So let's read together. Let's just all read together these verses, all right? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our own sins in his own blood, 
He has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And so the book of Revelation, again, gives us an introduction. Now, when we went through 1 John, I told you, in my opinion, the most important verse in 1 John was the very last verse of the book that said, little children, keep yourself from idols. Because in the book of 1 John, John described what God was like, and he ended by saying, anything that doesn't look like that, stay away from. But in the book of Revelation, just the opposite. The most important phrase to me in the book of Revelation is, is the very first phrase, all right? The very first phrase says the revelation of Jesus Christ. That word revelation is really an important word in understanding the book. It's a Greek word that means to unveil or to uncover. How many of you have ever seen a movie where they were going to kind of dedicate a certain monument and they had it covered up? All the people of the town came together in the park and they were waiting for them to pull the sheet off and, and to reveal the statue. And so the idea, that's the idea of revelation. It's to uncover something, as it says, either something or someone that was once hidden becoming visible. I want you to understand the book of Revelation, the purpose of the book is to unveil Jesus. Even though there are many things in the book that I do not understand. Matter of fact, I, I said in the earlier service, I said that my best sermon on Revelation was the first one. I knew everything about everything. And I found out the longer I go and the more I study, the more I realize I probably didn't know all that much to begin with. And so there are a lot of things we're not going to agree on. There's a lot of things, a lot of signs and symbols. I love to talk to people about it. I love to get people's opinion. But again, we're not here to, to argue or to debate. I'm going to kind of share my thoughts about it. And so again, but the purpose of the book, to know in your mind the purpose of the book is to unveil Jesus. Can you see why Satan doesn't want us reading the book of Revelation? And probably there's one book people stay away from more than any other book. It's the book of Revelation. And I can see why Satan wants you to stay away from it because he does not want you to see Jesus as he is. He doesn't want you to know that God wins in the end and he loses. And so again, a lot of things we don't understand, but there are a lot of things we are going to understand as we go through the book. And so this gives me an image of that word revelation, all right? So something that was veiled is all of a sudden lifted. So in chapter 1, John's going to see a vision of Jesus. Now keep in mind, he's in his 90s. It's been 60 years since he saw Jesus ascend into heaven. And John, who was as close to Jesus as anyone else, all of a sudden on the island of Patmos, he sees Jesus after 60 years. And so the book of Revelation means to unveil. So this is the book of Revelation. The meaning of the word revelation is to unveil Jesus. It's to lift the veil off and show us who Jesus is. And even though most of us have in our mind an earthly picture of Jesus because we grew up with all these pictures, for the last 2,000 years, he has not been in an earth suit. 
He has not been in a human body. For the last 2,000 years, he is in his glorified state. And when John saw him on the island of Patmos there in chapter 1, he was so blown away by the holiness of God that he fell at the feet of Jesus as though dead. Can I just tell you this? Anytime you get in the presence of God, this is true all through the Bible, the number one thing that people do is to literally fall on their face before God. People say to me, Pastor, we need more excitement in the church. We need people jumping over the pews. We need more shouters. And we probably need a little of that. But I can't tell you the number one thing we need is just to be in the presence of God. Whenever you get into the presence of a holy God and realize how unholy we are, the natural response is to fall on our face. So here in chapter 1, how many of you have a picture of Jesus like this hanging on your wall? Isn't it kind of crazy that... In the last 2,000 years, he's been in his glorified state, but all we think of is him in his earth suit. Again, that's important. We need to understand his, his mission when he came to earth. But I'm just telling you, we serve an awesome God. We serve a Jesus that is exalted, all right? And so this is the book of Revelation. It's unveiling, taking the veil off who Jesus really is, all right? And so in verse 1 there it says that he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. So much of the book of Revelation is signs and symbols, all right? And that's where we get a little bit confusing. I don't understand every sign, every symbol. But again, don't get caught up in what you don't understand, but hold on to what you do understand. The word angel there just means messenger, and it's used 76 times in the book of Revelation. It's amazing how often God uses angels to carry out things in the last days. So angels are messengers. In chapters 2 and 3, we're going to find that word angel or messenger to represent the pastors of these local churches. But for the most part, when the word angel is found in Revelation, it's talking about Heavenly angels, all right? And the term there, number two, he saw is used 36 times in Revelation, and he heard 27 times. So a lot of the book of Revelation is what John saw and what John heard. And it's amazing how many times, I think it's about 12 times in the book of Revelation, John gets so overwhelmed at what he's seen, he forgot to write it down, or he's forgetting to write it down. And about 12 times, God says to him, hey, John, John, write this down. This is good. Write it down. And I want to tell you, take notes during Revelation. Take notes. It's worth writing it down. Anything that God shows you, write it down. Circle it. Underline it on your notes. All right? The number seven is used about 50 times in the book of Revelation. Uh, seven is kind of that number of fullness, completeness, a number we attribute to God himself. All right? So verse three, very important verse. Verse 3 says, let's read it one more time together. Blessed is he who reads those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. Notice he does not say, blessed are you if you understand everything in the book. He doesn't say that. But he promises a blessing that if we will read it, if we will hear it, if we will hold on to what he does give us, he promises us a blessing. You know, there are seven beatitudes or seven blessings spoken in the book of Revelation. This is the first one. The seventh one is in chapter 22. But throughout the book, there are seven times where it says blessed. And so here in the beginning, you say, why did we all read the scripture at the beginning? I don't know if I like reading the scripture. I'd rather just hear it. But the Bible says you're promised to be blessed if you read it, if you hear it, 
and if you hold on to what you do get, all right? So there's a promised blessing from this book. So John is out here on this island of Patmos out here in the Aegean Sea, and he's going to write letters to these seven churches. And the island of Patmos is about 60 miles from Ephesus, so it's out in the water. It's actually a penal island where people who were being punished were thrown out there. It's a lot like our Alcatraz. How many of you have ever been to Alcatraz? All right, just kind of a rough, rugged little island out there. Well, that was the island of Patmos in John's day. It was not uh, the Hawaiian Islands. It was not a vacation destination. It literally was a nothing island where they would throw people out there to rot and to die and to, and to suffer for what they had done. And so here John is thrown out on this island. He's in his 90s. He's in his 90s. He has served God faithfully all these years, and he gets thrown out on this island. How many of you have ever had a pity party? Preachers are the worst. They're the worst. And how many of you know nobody wants to hear your story? Because we all have pity parties. But if anybody deserved a pity party, it would have been the Apostle John. I mean, to be so faithful serving God, yet he's thrown out on this island, all right? And so he gives a greeting from the Trinity in verses 4 and 5. He says, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. That's God the Father. And from the seven spirits who were before the throne, which I believe represents the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. He gives a, a greeting from the Trinity. And so all of God is represented here as we get into the book of Revelation. And then he mentions in verse 7, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And so the Bible says when he comes back to earth, and I think there are two parts to his coming. I think he's going to come in the clouds and rapture the church. But when he comes fully back to earth, which will be at the end of the tribulation, I believe the Bible teaches every eye will see him. Now, when he came the first time, he came very unnoticed by the world. When he was born in the manger, literally, other than a few shepherds, he went unnoticed by the world. He was under the radar screen. But the Bible says when Jesus comes back, every eye will see him. That's why when Jesus was teaching the disciples in Matthew 24, he said, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, are there, do not believe it. Because some people say, hey, Christ came back. He's up on the mountain. Let's go see him. He's out in the desert. Let's go see him. Christ says, no, don't believe. He comes back, every eye will see him. When he comes back, he's coming back as king of kings and lord of lords. And every eye will see him. He's coming back different. And it's going to happen very suddenly. He says a few verses later there in Matthew 24, as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Why lightning happens so fast. But when he comes, it's going to happen really fast. Every eye will see him. So you're not going to have to call your neighbor. Hey, did you see that? Everybody's going to see it. He's going to come at one time. Everybody will see him come back. So he's out on this island, the island of Patmos. It's about seven miles long, about three miles wide or so. I think the, the widest part is about six miles. But he's out here on this island. I believe today it's about 13 square miles. That's all the bigger this island is. Not very big. But today about 3,000 people actually live on this island. But back in the day, it was the Alcatraz. All right. So that's where he was put 
to suffer and out on this island. I would have been having kind of a pity party. And so the date of him writing the book was about A.D. 90 to 96, which ironically is about his age. He's somewhere in his 90s. So he's, again, out on this island. He should have had a nice retirement package, but this is where he's thrown out on this island. But I love what it says in verse 10 of chapter 1. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Out on this island that was just so remote, so difficult, the Bible says when it was the Lord's day, he was in the Spirit. He was worshiping God. Can I tell you, you can worship God anywhere. But he was worshiping God out on this island when God gave him this vision of revelation. Isn't it amazing that sometimes the greatest revelations come at our deepest, darkest moment? I want to say that again. Sometimes the greatest revelations we get from God come at our most difficult hours of life. And I also want to say some of your greatest strength that you will experience from God will come at your weakest moment. That's why he said to Paul, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Somebody said, I want the power of God. I want the power of God. Do you really? Because God may break you down completely before you experience that power. So anyway, out on this island, again, he's worshiping God. And then he sees this vision of Jesus. I never grew up seeing Jesus like this. I never had that picture in my mind. But he says he had a garment down to his feet. He had a golden band around his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass. He had a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. In his hand were seven stars, which are the seven pastors of these seven churches. And then he was in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, which we find out are the seven churches. Now, John has not seen him for 60 years. And when he sees Jesus, he's right in the middle of the, these local churches. He has the pastors in his right hand. People say to me, I don't know if I need the church, pastor. I don't know if I need the church. Jesus was right in the middle of these churches, and some of them were a mess. Many of them were a mess. But Jesus loves the local church. He loves the body of Christ. And so when he sees him 60 years later, here he is in his glorified state. He has the pastors in his right hand, and he's standing in the middle of these churches. I think Jesus cares about what's going on in the local church. I really do. I think he cares about the local church. All right? So we get to chapters 2 and 3. Uh, he's going to write letters to these seven churches. They're going to be addressed to him, and he's going to send them to these seven churches. And how many of you know if you got a letter from God, you would take it serious? All right? And you'll, we'll kind of find out when we get to chapters 2 and 3, a lot of times how they saw themselves and how God saw them was completely different, all right? So anyway, chapters 2 and 3, we're going to look at these seven letters written to these seven churches. And then we get to chapters 4 and 5, we're going to look, the scene will shift from earth to heaven. And we're going to find out about worship in heaven. So chapter 4, God is worshiped as creator. In chapter 5, he's worshiped as redeemer. They're looking for somebody to take the scroll of redemption out of the hand of God the Father. And the Bible says no one was worthy except Jesus, the Lamb. 
And when he comes and takes that scroll, all of heaven worships. So in heaven, the worship is not going to be how I necessarily like it or how you like it. But worship is going to be centered around the throne of God. And it's going to be three-dimensional. Instead of being kind of a two-dimensional, literally every which way you look, the throne is going to be in the middle. Everywhere you look, you're going to see people worshiping God. A couple other things that you'll find when we get into the worship of heaven, it's very spontaneous. It's amazing when one group begins to praise God, all the other groups say, I can't help it, I want in on it, and all the other groups begin to praise. I mean, everybody just spontaneously joins in to worship. There are no spectators in heaven. Everybody will worship. Another thing we're going to find about heaven is everything is very loud. Everything in heaven, I don't know how many times I went through it when I discovered everything in heaven is loud. And I had people tell me, Pastor, I don't like it loud. Pastor, that, that music was just too loud. I like it quiet. I think there's going to have to be a course for many of us before we get there. Everything in heaven's loud. And so if everything's loud and somebody needs to be heard, he spoke with a loud voice. You have to be because everything's loud. How many of you are still excited about going? <laughs> everything's going to be loud. I don't know if he'll provide hearing, you know, things to block. I don't know. But everything in heaven's going to, I mean, we're going to give it everything we have. I tell you, worship, you should leave a worship service exhausted. If you've given God everything you have in worship, you ought to leave here exhausted. And he deserves everything. Whatever your everything is. If you're not a shouter, if you're a grunter, you should be grunting a lot. If you're not a hand raiser, you just do it at the wrist. Hopefully your wrist is sore. But I mean, when you walk out, we should walk out exhausted because we've given God everything. He's worthy. So chapters 4 and 5, we're going to look at the worship of heaven. And then from chapter 6 to 19, we're going to look at the tribulation period, the seven-year tribulation period. And by the way, when Jesus talked to his disciples, he said in Matthew 24, there's going to be great tribulation since it's not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And if you study the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, as Jesus told his disciples the signs of his coming, again, those aren't signs to his coming in the air, but they're signs to him coming all the way back to earth at the end of the tribulation. And you'll find, you'll find a parallel in, in Revelation 6 and 9 through 19 of everything Jesus taught in these passages. So everything Jesus said were the signs of him coming all the way back to earth at the end of the tribulation. So just real simply, the seven-year tribulation will start when the Antichrist signs a peace agreement with Israel. I used to think the, uh, the, the seven-year tribulation started with the rapture of the church. That's not true. It starts when the Antichrist signs a peace agreement with Israel. One day, I'm going to tell you, as crazy as it is in the Middle East, always has been crazy, one day there's going to be a peace agreement. One day the Antichrist and Israel will sign a peace agreement. And when they do, that starts that seven-year period. One day it'll happen. In the middle of that tribulation, about three and a half years in, the Antichrist is going to break his agreement with Israel. He's going to set up an image in the temple and literally cause everyone to worship Satan. 
the very temple that was meant to worship God, he's going to set up an image and cause the world to worship Satan. The last three and a half years are going to be very intense. The Bible describes the last three and a half years as the wrath of God. It's going to be very, very intense. And Jesus will come back in Revelation chapter 19. But there's going to be that seven-year period, again, where all these signs will happen before he comes back to earth. And so I like to think of that scroll as he takes that scroll in chapter 5. Every time Jesus takes a seal off of that scroll in heaven, something happens on earth. How many of you like to watch fireworks? But I'm going to give an illustration whether you like fireworks or not. But I want you to imagine, sometimes, I always like those ones where it goes off and it's so big and so awesome. And about the time you think it's over, all of a sudden, there's kind of a shoot off to the side. And boom, there's another big one. And about the time you think that's dying down, there's another shoot off of that. Boom, there's another big one. I want you to imagine during the tribulation, there are going to be three sets of judgments. And like fireworks, one is going to come from the other. They're just literally going to follow each other. So first of all, in chapter 6, there's the seal judgments. Every time Jesus peels off a seal in heaven, there's going to be something happen on earth. All right? And so when he gets to the seventh seal, the Bible says when he opens the seventh seal, there's going to be silence in heaven for 30 minutes. That's why many don't believe pastors are going to be there. It's going to be 30 minutes of silence. But when he opens the seventh seal, no one specific thing happens. But when he opens the seventh seal, that literally introduces a whole new series of judgments. So understand that the seventh seal literally opens up a complete new series of judgments, the trumpet judgments. And so as these trumpets begin to sound in heaven, a judgment happens here on earth. So it goes from the seal judgments to the trumpet judgments. But when it gets to the seventh trumpet, like the seventh seal, when that seventh trumpet sounds, it introduces us to another series of judgments. Now it's interesting, when the seventh seal was opened, there was silence in heaven. But when the seventh trumpet sounds, the Bible says, loud voices from heaven. Loud, everybody say loud. Loud voices from heaven. And they will cry out when the seventh trumpet sounds, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ. And they shall reign forever and ever. Amen. They go very loud. And so when the trump seventh trumpet sounds, it introduces us to the last series of judgments. And that's the bold judgments. And that's during the latter part of the tribulation. Now, when you think about a bowl judgment, the Bible says these bowls are filled with the wrath of God. How many of you have ever filled a bowl so full you can't hardly walk? These aren't just half full. The wrath of God has filled these bowls. And when they talk about pouring them on the earth, they're not talking about just itty bitty at a time. But you're going to find these angels are going to literally dump the wrath of God full strength. I mean... Those last three and a half years are going to be unlike any tribulation the world has ever known. People will be begging to die, and they cannot die. I mean, the wrath of God is going to be poured out big time during these last three and a half years. All right, and when the seventh bowl is poured, again, there's a voice from heaven, a loud voice coming from the throne, and it says, it is done! After all these judgments are poured out, a voice from the throne says, it is 
is done. One day, evil will be done away with. One day, finally, all the corruption will be over. But I just want to tell you, before it gets better, it's going to get worse. Man, that tribulation period is going to be very, very intense, all right? Now, I believe we're going to be raptured out. Now, some believe we're going to be raptured out before the tribulation. Some believe in the middle of the tribulation. I, I, I don't know if I'm a premillennialist. Uh, I always tell people I'm a panmillennialist. It'll all pan out, all right? I know God is faithful. God is faithful, all right? And so after the, the seven-year tribulation up in heaven, just before Jesus comes back to earth, there's going to be a marriage in heaven. How many of you like going to, to, to marriages, weddings? None of the guys raising their hand. All right, just, it's, not, it's not necessarily a guy thing. But there's going to be a marriage in heaven. And the Bible said, this is one I don't understand. I'm just telling you up front, I do not understand how the Bible teaches that Christ will be married to the church. I don't understand. I mean, I've had people say, if I could just go to heaven and, and scrub the street with a toothbrush, I'd be happy. Me too, compared to the alternative. But the Bible doesn't say he's, we're going to be up there scrubbing the street with a tube. The Bible says the church is somehow going to be united with Jesus and we're going to become one. He says to one of the churches, he who overcomes, I'm going to allow to sit on my throne with me. How many of you think it's going to be really creepy to look up at the throne of Jesus and see me scooching down next to him? I tell people, I love the verse in Isaiah that says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so my God will rejoice over you. I, I, I know that we're going to be excited about being in heaven, no doubt about it. But the Bible says God is going to rejoice over us like a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. Whew. I love doing weddings. I love that part where the, the doors open up and the bride comes in. Everybody stands up, everybody turns around, a lot of oohs and ahs. And I'm usually right here, I usually have the groom standing right there. And while I watch the bride come down, I always watch the groom. I've seen some big, strong, burly guys, tough guys. When they see their bride coming down, man, tears streaming down their cheek. And the Bible says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so will my God rejoice over you. Can I tell you, God is going to be so excited to see you in heaven. Isn't that hard to imagine? Very hard to imagine that God's going to be that excited. There's going to be a wedding. As a matter of fact, when John sees it, John has seen a lot in the book of Revelation. But when he sees the marriage supper of the Lamb, when somehow God gives him a glimpse that Christ is going to be married to the church, he's so blown away by that, the Bible says he fell to the ground and he started worshiping the angel who showed him. He didn't know what, he was so blown away by that fact that God is going to join himself. His Bible says he fell down and began to worship the angel. And the angel said, hey, don't do that. Worship God. I'm just telling you, if you can even, I don't even know if I can put my mind around that. That God not only wants us in heaven, but he's going to be united together with us. That really is amazing to think God would love us that much. And so after the marriage of the Lamb, Jesus is coming back. 
All the signs that he gave in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, all those have already happened. And now he's coming back to earth. He's riding on a white horse. And the Bible says he's coming back in the clouds of his, his people. Jude tells us in Jude verse 14, he's coming back with 10,000s of his saints. We get to come back with him as his bride. It's a honeymoon. And we're coming back and we're riding on white horses. People ask me, are there going to be animals in heaven? I'm going to say, yes, I know there's horses. And if there's horses, there's got to be dogs. <laughs> maybe cats, maybe cats. But I, 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 that's just my humble opinion. Don't write that down as fact. But we're coming back when Jesus comes back. I love to read the ending of the book, don't you? I mean, the book of Revelation, you may not understand everything. We may not agree on every symbol. But I want to tell you, when you read it, you realize God wins in the end, Satan loses. And whether you get everything or not, not a big deal. But I mean, we win in the end. Several years ago, I was watching a Mizzou football game. It was probably one of their biggest games ever. They were up against someone who should have beaten them. And man, it was back and forth, back and forth, up and down, up and down. They were by, and, and I'm usually, I'm, not, I'm that kind of guy, when I watch a football game, I talk to the TV. Do I have anybody out here, do I have a witness? Anybody out here talk to your TV? You got, you got to talk. I mean, I'm talking, I get sweaty, I talk, I complain to the refs. I mean, I'm talking to the TV. Brenda has to go out of the room. I mean, we're talking. But this game, I was watching this game, it was so intense, up and down. I was so relaxed. I mean, I was, I was, you know, eating some popcorn. I was relaxed, had my feet up, drinking some iced tea. I was not upset at all because I was watching a rerun. <laughs> I already looked on my app, and I knew Mizzou won. And even though they were down, I was, I was okay because I knew the outcome. And I'm telling you, when you read the book of Revelation, you're going to look around and say, this world's crazy. It is crazy, going to maybe get crazier, but in the end, we win. Why would you not want to read the book of Revelation? Why would you want not want to know how the story ends? And if you really believe how the story ends, I just want to tell you guys, life is hard. Life is difficult, but we win in the end. It's okay. It's okay. That's why we need to look at the book. So he's going to come back, chapter 19, and then there's going to be Armageddon. I've always heard this called the Battle of Armageddon. The battle of Armageddon. The Bible never calls it the battle of Armageddon. The Bible refers to it as the supper of the great God. Because there really is no battle. When Jesus comes back and we're coming back with him, there really isn't a battle. Can you imagine Satan gathering people from all around the world to fight Jesus? Can anybody say, dumb? That's pretty dumb. But he gets all these people together, maybe in the valley of Megiddo, which you will see in Israel. Maybe in this valley, they're going to gather together against Jesus. The Bible says when he comes back, he's going to take the false prophet and the beast, throw him in the lake of fire, and then everybody else is going to be destroyed with the sword that comes out of his mouth. Literally, by the spoken word, he will wipe everyone out. I as a bridle on a horse. I want to say it's not really a battle. God will win. Why does he bring us back with him? Because we want to see the bridegroom and, and we get to witness that and just watch that defeat. He's bringing us back with him. 
And again, even though we call it a battle, it's really not going to be a battle. And then when he comes back, he's going to set up and rule and reign for a thousand years on this earth. When we go to Israel, we stand on the Mount of Olives. And there's something about standing on the Mount of Olives and looking over the Kidron Valley to, the, to Jerusalem. The Bible says that just as Jesus ascended, he's coming back. I believe Israel not only has an amazing history, but one day when he comes back, I believe he's coming back to the Mount of Olives. He's coming back and we're coming back with him. I believe he's going to rule and reign for a thousand years in Jerusalem. I have no idea what we're going to do during those thousand years. But I know he's going to have us all busy. We're going to be serving God for a thousand years. And every year, he's going to require all the nations to come back for the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, during this thousand years, by the way, Satan is bound for a thousand years. How many of you think he's going to be pretty ticked off when they let him out? But he's bound for a thousand years. So for a thousand years, we experience total peace and total rule from God. But at the end of the thousand years, when Satan is loosed, he still convinces people to go against God. He's pretty powerful. And one last time, he will gather people together against God. And after the millennial reign of Christ, which I believe will be a thousand years, can you imagine living under the peace and the rule of God for a thousand years? And I think you say, why? Why would God allow Satan one more time to convince people to go against God? Because they've lived under the peace of God for a thousand years. But it just shows you that man's heart is really hardened against God. And even though we've lived under the, many people under the rule of God, he can still convince them to go against God. Now that's not the believer. I believe believers are saved throughout the process, and they don't have to worry about losing that. But at the end of the thousand years, there's going to be a great white throne judgment. I believe every lost person that has ever lived will stand before God. And they're going to appear before Jesus one by one and have to give an account of why they did not accept Jesus. Can you imagine how long that line's going to be? The Bible says the books are going to be there. One of the books the Bible mentions is the Lamb's Book of Life. I used to wonder, why would the Lamb's Book of Life be there if it's all lost people? Now, I don't know. I'm just giving you an opinion. I may, may perhaps God, Jesus has the Lamb's Book of Life there to say to everybody, there was room in here for you, but you chose against me. How crazy it is, if you could read the book of Revelation, how crazy it would be to walk away from God. If you knew how the story ended, that would be like we, me knowing that Mizzou already won and I bet, against, I bet on the other team. That would be dumb. All right? And so there's going to be a great white throne judgment. And hopefully nobody here is at that judgment because everyone here has accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. And then the Bible says there's going to be a new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem is going to come down out of heaven. And the Bible describes New Jerusalem, the city that we're going to live in, as a cube. It's 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, and 1,500 miles high. It's a cube. That's about the distance, I believe, from here to Phoenix, Arizona. It's about 1,500 miles. So that's how long it is. That's how wide it is. That's how tall it is. I have no idea what floor I'm going to be on. I don't know how God's going to do it. 
It's funny that there's going to be gates to that city. The gates are going to seem itty-bitty compared to how tall it is. But it's going to come down out of heaven. And God says, behold, I make all things new. How many of you like are curious about your retirement home? We all are. When you read Revelation 21, 22, you get a little bit of a, a little bit of an insight to your retirement home. But if you read Revelation 21, 22, if you think about it, all the Bible describes about our eternal home is the walls around the city, the foundation of the walls, and the pavement of the city. How many of you get excited about your foundation? You love to show everybody that comes over your foundation. How many of you love to have people come over and you show them the fence around your house? All the Bible describes is the beauty of the wall made of all these precious jewels. The gates are solid pearls. And then it talks about the street of heaven being pure gold. I doubt if anybody here is excited about your asphalt out in front of your house. Does anybody here have a necklace with a piece of asphalt on it? Anybody have a ring with a little piece of asphalt? Think about it. We're excited of heaven knowing that the asphalt is pure gold. The walls are precious stones. It doesn't even describe our mansion. Most of us are going to just sit and gawk at the wall. We're going to sit and just rub our hand on the pavement. Pure gold. Somebody said God finished heaven. He swept out the dust and, and we're finding all this gold. We're shouting over the dust of heaven. I'm just telling you, it's going to be good in the end. Can you imagine walking on pure gold? Can you imagine what God has prepared for his people? He said, I'm going to prepare a place. It only took him a week to make all of creation. And he's been working 2,000 years on your retirement home. You know, in Jewish culture, the, the bridegroom, before they get married, he has to go back home and prepare a place for his bride. And in Jewish culture, the father of the, of the groom says to the groom, it's well, it's good enough, go get your bride. The father determines that. That's when Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. One day the father's going to say to Jesus, go get your bride. And he's going to come back for the church. That's why we got to always be ready. We don't know that day or that hour that he's going to come. Then Revelation ends. I just want to end with this verse. You know, throughout the, the Bible, is, is one, it's really a great love story, the Bible. Of God created Adam and Eve. It starts with us in a garden with God. And it ends with us in an eternal city with God. It's a love story. And even though man fell in the beginning, the whole Bible is about God's love for us and God restoring us back to himself. And the whole Bible is about God's passionate love. And in the end, one last time before John closes the book of Revelation, one last time God gives an invitation. Because there may be one person, one last time God offers an invitation to anyone who is thirsty in life. We sometimes refer to this as the great invitation, but let's read Revelation twenty-two seventeen. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come, and whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. One last time, God says to the world, 
if you're truly thirsty, if you're looking for something that satisfies, come to the water. I have the privilege of doing lots of funerals, and it really is a privilege. Just last week, I, got, I drove all the way to Jefferson Barracks to do a five-minute service. The guy at the funeral home said, you only got five minutes? They keep a really tight schedule down at Jefferson Barracks, and I understand that. But I had five minutes. How many of you know when you give a preacher five minutes, that's tough? And so I had to realize I have to cut out the fat. I've got to get right to the point. But I remember when we gathered there with this veteran, he was a veteran of the Vietnam War, and a lot of our Vietnam War vets did not get treated very good when they came back. And I said to the family, he had one daughter, some family there, and I said, I just want you all to know what an incredible privilege it is for me to drive down here. Somebody would say to me, why do you want to drive all the way to Jefferson Barracks for five minutes? I said, this brother, his name was Lonnie. I said, Lonnie went to Vietnam for us. I can drive to Jefferson Barracks for him. I said, I consider it a privilege to be here. And I said, I know if Lonnie could come back. I didn't know Lonnie's state with God. But I know if Lonnie could come back. I think I say at every funeral, if Lonnie could come back, I know without a doubt he'd want you all to know that God loves you so much. God loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sin so that you and I could have heaven. I don't want anyone to leave without knowing Jesus. If you forget me, it's not a big deal. But you don't want to forget Jesus. How could God love us anymore? He literally gave everything he had so that you and I could have eternal life. Wouldn't it be great someday in heaven to look around and see every face that's here this morning? Wouldn't it be great to look around in heaven and see every face there on the other side because everyone took time to trust Christ? It's not about a church. It's not about a denomination. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So I want to pray just a simple prayer. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to ask everybody to pray it. And maybe everybody here has already prayed this prayer. And you're, I believe if you truly invite Christ into your life, it's forever. But maybe there's one person here today that's not 100% sure. And maybe this is your day that you're going to really invite Christ into your life. It could be the greatest day of your life. By the way, I've got up here on this river flags from every country. Or from most countries. The Bible says one day in heaven there's going to be people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. The love of God literally reaches the, remote, the most remote people on the earth. And there will be people there in heaven. That's the love of God. We got a team right now in El Salvador sharing the gospel. I want to pray this prayer. I want everybody to repeat it after me. Let's all stand together. So if everybody will just say this out loud. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I ask you to forgive me. And I invite you into my life as Lord and Savior. From this day forward, my life belongs to you. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen.
If you prayed that prayer for the very first time and you truly meant business, the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. No greater, I mean, how could you know how it ends and not give your heart to Jesus? That would be crazy. I wouldn't gamble one day without Jesus because when he comes back, it's going to be like lightning. You're not going to have time to rethink it. I hope today, if you prayed that prayer, I hope you'll share with several people on the way out. I'll be standing in the back. I hope that you'll say, all you got to say to me is, I prayed that prayer for the first time. I hope as believers, as we journey through the book of Revelation, I hope it's an encouragement for us to stay faithful to God. Great, great book. It's just an amazing book. All the books in the Bible are good. But this one specifically, the purpose of this book is to unveil Jesus. Let me pray for you, and then we'll close with a song. Father, I just thank you for your love, your faithfulness. I thank you for my brothers and sisters who are here today. And God, I pray that our life would never be the same. God, help us to get just a fresh glimpse of your glory. And Father, fill us with your spirit. Help us to make a difference everywhere we go this week. Fill us, empower us, in Jesus' name, amen.